What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. We're talking about maximizing online learning with the news that NATA just went virtual again and we're missing out on Orlando. I was going to try and use that excuse to take my kids to Disney and things like that, but it's just not happening. And so with COVID-19, there's even more online learning. And so Dr. Brent Brooke Bush started the Brooke Bush Institute where they have over 150 online courses. But the thing is, I want to take like an IASTM course or my coworker Sophia, she's going to take the Rock Pods or Rock Floss course, something like that. So we're taking these manual therapy type courses, but I don't want to take them online because I want to... I want to do it on somebody. I want to feel it on somebody. I want somebody to tell me, hey, no, that's right. Hey, this is what it feels like when it's good. And so I need to know how I can maximize my learning and not just miss out on on all those courses or those opportunities to treat my athletes better. So Brandon's joining us and also Tanya Watson has taken lots of these courses that I'm actually planning on taking. And so she's going to have her input, but she's also going to be asking some good questions of Dr. Brooke Bush about how we can maximize our online learning this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Brent Brooke Bush. All one word, Brent Brooke Bush. So again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Brent Brooke Bush. All right, welcome to the podcast. And um, we were talking just beforehand about your podcast you just did with Mike Stella and the Movement Underground Radio. I would recommend so, checking that out because there was there's a question that I wanted to ask and you, I think you cover that really deep there with Mike is, is how do you choose what exercises when and you kind of you, you cover that a lot so I'd recommend all the listeners check that out if you want to hear more about that but we're going to we're going to continue with that conversation later um, but from that podcast Brent what was what do you feel like was your big takeaway yeah I mean <clears throat> Mike's a really energetic guy and uh, we had a great conversation you know it was it was fun to match his energy because he is such a passionate um, passionate therapist and he definitely asked some very pointed questions and we see a lot of new statements being made almost for the very point of making controversy within the social media sphere around our professions. I don't actually think it reflects real life in our professions necessarily, but in the social media sphere, we see some of these like really hardline things like manual therapy is ineffective or assessment isn't reliable or, you know, some people just flat out saying things like that is bullshit, right? Like these, these statements are so far on one side or the other, but the truth of the matter is, is they, they probably can't be true, right? We, nothing is that absolute in life. Life is probabilistic. It's not binary. It's never yes or no. So I think when I was talking to Mike, one of the questions he asked me is like, what do you think about these people who are to say manual therapy is ineffective? And my statement was they don't read research, period. And he's like, well, what about the people who say it's not supported by research? And I was like, they don't read research because if you look at the research as a whole and you know, one of the things about the Brooke Bush Institute that we've established and thinks differentiates us a little bit is we decided that all of our courses were going to be evidence-based and what that meant to us is they were going to be built on comprehensive reviews of all available original research so not just like a few studies to support the course i'm talking we went in and went okay we're doing joint manipulations we're going to find all the joint manipulation research we possibly can and come to reasonably objective conclusions based on that research now 
what ends up happening is, is we gather tons and tons of research. And some things have lots of research support and other things don't have as much support. And I think that's given me in particular a, a little bit of a unique view to see kind of what are some of the most supported techniques in research based on quality and quantity of research? And what are some of the least and how do they relate to one another? And one thing that I was surprised to find is like, I'm going through courses, I'm writing courses, I'm staying on schedule, I'm staying on schedule. Like exercises have a pretty good amount of research. It's fun, I'm having a good time coming to conclusions. And then I got to joint mobilizations and manipulations and it backed me up like six months because there is literally more research on joint mobilizations and manipulations than just about any other modality intervention in our space, right? So people are like, oh, well, manipulations, mobilizations aren't supported by research. If they're not supported by research, nothing in our profession is supported by research. If that bar you're saying is not high enough for your acceptance, then you've basically said nothing has enough research support for your acceptance. And I think me and Mike got into that, that question. And I think that's a really important point to get out there. You know, these people who are taking retrospective systematic reviews, finding one of them, which is cherry picking, just because you found a systematic review doesn't make it any less cherry picking than finding one study. But they find one systematic review, think that because it's a higher level of evidence, which it is not, it is a secondary source especially if it is retrospective, not prospective, right? So they find one retrospective systematic review and go, ha, this shows that manual therapy isn't effective. And it's like, okay, you cherry picked with a secondary source and all that systematic review is saying is that we did not refute the null hypothesis, probably because we don't have enough research, right? That's also what that systematic review is telling us is that there wasn't enough research to do this type of systematic analysis, right, based on the evidence that we have. So we see a lot of this very bad misinterpretation used to create these very wild conclusions to then post on social media, which then get a lot of attention because controversial information gets way more attention than just good educational information. And then guys like us on this podcast have to sit there and try to steer the ship back. And it hasn't been easy. It is definitely a heavy torch we carry. Um, obviously it's happening, we're doing it. You, you see less and less of these controversial statements being made, I feel like over the last 18 months, but um, you were asking what I got out of the Mike Stella podcast. I would say that little point that I just made was a huge point. Um, and I hope that that gets out there a lot more. I hope that that somehow is controversial enough to get the attention that some of these other posts have. <laughs> Well, and then kind of going to on the evidence-based uh, research, um, everybody gets caught up in the research studies, which is a very important aspect of it. But if we're talking about evidence-based medicine, we also got to remember we have clinician expertise and we also have patient values as part sure. of that evidence-based medicine. So I'm someone who does a lot of manual therapy with my, my patients, my high school kids also. So if I'm going to just go, if I'm just going to take all those research articles that you just said, don't show that, you know, don't prove the null hypothesis. But as an, as a clinician, I'm using a lot of manual therapy that I'm seeing good results with. And my kids, my high school athletes say they feel better and they perform better after certain manual interventions. 
that's, you know, that's part of the evidence-based medicine. Like, you know, it, can it be, you know, touted to some as anecdotal? Okay. But, you know, when I have a, an, my swimmer who I did cupping on uh, before district track, but before district swim meet comes up to me the day of the meet and says, I just PR'd. Thank you so much for what you did. You know, you're a miracle worker that which a lot of the athletic trainers and physical therapists get, you know, when you get, you find an intervention that works for that athlete, you know, you can't ignore that evidence also even if some people may tout it as anecdotal not not to be a jerk and i'm not trying to be a jerk but i do want to correct one thing you said uh, that's super important it is not research that is ref not refuting the null hypothesis the research it's for manual therapy is very supportive it is systematic reviews, reviews which do not which we are having a problem refuting a null hypothesis in a systematic review and it actually comes down to the amount of quality research we have Right, because systematic reviews almost need RCTs. Right. A lot of people, for whatever reason, don't do systematic reviews on observational studies, although there are methodologies to do that. So then they move to this more mathematical systematic review using experimental studies. And what they find is as soon as they do that, they it's almost like an unintentional cherry picking. There's only mm -hmm. a few studies available, and then they can't get over regression to the mean to actually get the null hypothesis refuted, which is more of a commentary on the on, on our research as a whole. Um, so I just, I wanted to correct that because I don't want people to think like that there's a bunch of research out there that's anti-manual therapy. The truth of the matter is, is when you look at the original studies, joint manipulations, joint mobilizations are very, very well supported. Trigger points, very well, so trigger point therapy from dry needling to static manual release techniques, uh, very, very well supported stuff. Um, you know, I think to what your point, cupping obviously is a little newer. There's not a whole lot of research on cupping. And to your point, like if we're going to use this SACIT evidence-based, you know, three-legged stool thing of like outcomes, patient, you know, patient experience or patient, um, I'm forgetting the exact words used by SACIT here, but, you know, you do have patient outcomes and experience from the therapist and then that research piece. And we get hung up on this research piece and forget that not everything has research. Right. We still have to be able to innovate and we still have to be able to accommodate the person that is right in front of us, regardless of whether we have the research available or not. And that is absolutely where we have to rely on outcomes. Now, you know, the Brooke Bush Institute, we try to teach that ideally we, you would use some sort of reliable objective assessment as opposed to feelings. Because I think feelings, it's very easy to fake. It's oh, yeah. very easy to modify pain. It's very easy to make somebody feel better. Um, it's much harder to say, okay, I had a five degree increase in goniometry. And in the subsequent session during follow-up, before I did my next treatment, there was carryover. And I kept some of that with this objective measure. You know, like I think that data is is definitely a piece we all need to be talking about more. And when new things like cupping come out, not just go, oh, screw cupping, cupping doesn't have any research. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Because it hasn't been researched yet. <laughs> yeah, not having re any research just means, okay, so you don't have any research. Like it's it's not a yes or a no. It's a, okay, let's see what our outcomes are. You know, we all have, you know, people experiment with exercises all the time mm -hmm. and don't act like that's not the same thing. It is the same thing. You don't have a research on that particular thing i mean we i have tons of modifications of corrective exercises right like because that was my big thing like when we started the brook bush institute was corrective exercise you don't have the 
the research study that shows that the Brook Bush modification of gluteus medius activation is 25% better than this, but my outcomes seem to be better, so I'm going with it, right? Like, do I have research to back up gluteus medius or anything? Sure, but that particular thing, no, not, not no. And we, we all don't, like some of this stuff is such a joke when you like really talk about it in practice. Even the research thing, you know, I look at all the research, but I have an education company. Right, that's what I do. And it is an amazingly labor intensive job. And I'm the only person that I know that does that. I'm not saying that to be egocentric. I'm saying, I still think we're the only education company to like have 60 to 300 citations on every one to four hour course, thousands of citations. I know what it's taken me over the last 10 years to put that together. It is absolutely unrealistic to expect to expect the normal practitioner working a nine to five to somehow do that, right? it's not even possible, right? Like, what are you asking people to do? Oh, you don't have evidence. Neither do you, bro. <laughs> like if you're working a nine to five, like you don't, you didn't spend all that time reading the research. Um, there's definitely a lot of uh, perspective to be had. I think we need to be a lot more positive to each other, which is I think where we need to head with this. Um, I think we need to ask more of our education institutions, right? I'm sure you, those of you guys in when you went through your ATC programs had a couple teachers where you were like, I'm paying for this. Right? Like they they when you're at that level, you bet for the course you're teaching, you better know the research behind the course you're teaching. Like that's where I'm like, okay, we need to ask more of our educators. But you know, practitioners, like, yes, you should be reading research. You, I don't think you should be expected to know all of the research behind every technique that you use every day with the type of patient that you're using it with. It's just not even, that's not realistic. So on that same thing, like I don't have time to sit and read, you know, 300 research articles. And honestly, I don't, I'm not going to understand most of what I read. So if I'm going to take a course online, how, what are some of the things that I should look for to make sure that it is, you know, evidence-based, that it's not just the newest fad without any sort of evidential evidence support? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things that everybody could do right off the bat. If it doesn't have a bibliography, it's not worth studying. Okay, and I've chosen those words very carefully, right? If it doesn't have a bibliography, it's not worth studying, right? It's not worth you spending your education time on. Now, if you want to read a blog because you enjoy it or watch podcasts like this because you enjoy them, that's great. But if you're going for your CECs, you're going for your next certification, you should, or like you're reading a textbook to like increase your knowledge, the first thing you should do is flip to the back and be like, okay, is this well supported by something other than this guru's thought process? Because that's what we have to get away from, right? I think the second step if you want to take that one step further is quickly scan that bibliography to make sure that it is original research studies, primary citations. We learned this in school, original research studies from peer reviewed journals, not just a bunch of systematic reviews, not just a bunch of articles from other people that are essentially editorials, right? When you do that, when you cite editorials, when you cite secondary sources, okay, secondary sources add one level of bias, right? So citing a Brooke Bush Institute article, would include our citations plus whatever bias I bring or one of our writers bring to the table, right? Admittedly, when you cite me as your source now, you're adding your bias 
to my bias and then <laughs> the original research right so when you start seeing these articles where all they do is cite secondary sources you kind of have to go okay you've added two additional layers of potential bias and error we have to keep that in mind and i do see way too much of that um you know accreditation obviously is is something to look for but you do have to be careful because the accreditation world is tough i mean me and the uh, NATA. All of our courses are NATA approved, but we've had it out about this EBP course thing, which is essentially a subjective judgment on whether somebody passes the PICO or PO process, which is so far outside of reasonable for the rehab professions because it's based on a medical model, right? And medicine has a lot more money and a lot more resources for research. So I think, you know, Natabox at one point, half of your credits had to be evidence-based practice credits. And it's like you had to go through this panel that was gonna subjectively judge you on whether it was evidence-based and had to match this criteria that only a few courses even had the potential to do, which is why you guys have such few uh, subject matter or such few topics within that category. And I think they're finally doing away with it. but. That's an example of accreditation problems. Sorry to go off on that rant, but um, you know, I think going back, does what you're about to get into have a bibliography? Is that bibliography based on cited sources? You know, is the professional teaching credentialed and experienced? Right? Are you taking from somebody that you respect? And then, you know, as a fourth piece, it would be nice if that 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 organization was accredited by somebody so that you have some levels there to kind of ensure that this content has been reviewed, right? That essentially what I just explained was kind of like a little peer review process, perhaps a more intense peer review process than some of our journals, but that's a whole different rant. So yeah, the, the BOC is doing away with the, the EVPs. And as I believe the, the reasoning is they're realizing that a lot of a lot of the presenters and the people who are offering courses like yourself just didn't really necessarily want to do that extra credentialing process. So there was extra time, it was extra money, and most presenters, uh, whether especially if they were not athletic trainers themselves, um, you know, opted that you know what it's it meets category the category A, and that's you know that satisfies their desire to provide educational um, content to their their audience. Um, that's a nice that's a nice spin on that that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> well I, I mean that is that is a very political spin to go well i said as an athletic trainer look i said i i the only people i saw getting ebp certified were athletic trainers but there were uh, there's a lot of courses that i have taken that would qualify as ebp yeah but because they weren't athletic trainers they did not see the need to go through that extra credentialing process for their presentation. Listen, their it, wasn't a, it wasn't an extra credentialing process though. I think it's important to point that out. Like to say that the number one EBP credits for athletic trainers were not just evidence-based credits, right? All of our courses are evidence-based. Oh, yeah. Well, this, was, says, this, yeah. Was, this was PICO, right? Approved essentially and that process limits the type of courses that you can create so like i can't get one of our for example i couldn't get a, a lumbar mobilizations 
accredited, even though ATCs can do that, and even though we built that on a comprehensive literature review, because they somehow wanted me to turn that into this comparative case study driven thing that isn't possible because we don't have that type of research available to us. That's actually an instructional review design issue, a flaw that Natabok built into their system, tried to cover up with this subjective board approval system. And then after three years, finally gave up on that's, I, I, you know, and I hate to be like that, but like, that's not on educators. That was Natabok that, you know, I, I'm all for evidence-based everything. Trust me. I just, I, you, I just told you guys what I thought you should look for in an online program. And the first thing I said was bibliography based on original citations, right? Mm -hmm. Taught by credentialed professionals who you respect. Great. That's, that's evidence-based. What Natabok was doing was like something else. And look, Natabok isn't the only one. And overall, Natabok has been wonderful to, to work with, right? They have, they have been great to us, but a lot of accreditors will build these instructional design review flaws into their system and then expect educators like us to try to work around it. And it's, it's tough, man. When you see that we have 20 accreditations, like it's you just have to, you have to like kind of tip your hat to us and go, well, you're really masochistic, aren't you? <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, no. So our, our state association has gone through the BOC uh, approval process. So it's definitely a lot of hoops to uh, jump through. So if you've, the more places that you're accredited with, so the more providers you're able to, to benefit, that's definitely, definitely, you know, said, like you said, tip your hat. So it's a, a nightmare to deal with even just as athletic trainers, it's a nightmare just to deal with just BOC, making sure you've got all your ducks in a row and you've got everything lined up. I could only imagine doing that for CMEs, for, and the PTs, you've got each individual state you have to be certified yeah. with. It's not like athletic trainers where there's one national certifying body for our CEUs with PTs. It's each individual state board that you've got to get credentialed with to, for your PTs to be able to get credit. Um, yeah, yeah. They can take your class. Like I've taught, I've had several conversations with colleagues about personal versus professional development, just because a, a course isn't necessarily for athletic trainers, BOC approved, doesn't mean you're not going to get anything out of it. It just means it's not necessarily reportable for during our right. reporting period. Right. And the problem is, is people have limited time. So they really need to find those credits that, that do both that it, they enjoy personally and give them CCs. That's, and I, and I totally get that. Um, and I, although I respect the personal development, I understand where sometimes you get stuck and you kind of just need to get both done at the same time. Um, and yes, the Natabok, uh, which I know they hate being called Natabok, but the BOC, um, you know, they did it the right way in creating a national organization. Physical therapy tried to do it. We had something called ProCert through the FSBPT, but it was so poorly managed. And again, there was so many instructional design flaws that were inflating their administrative costs that they ended up falling apart. And uh, we also have some states in physical therapy that are asking for way too much money per course. Um, you know, luckily there's reciprocity in a lot of states for us, so we don't have to go to every, all 50 states, but um, it is a more complicated process than, than what the BOC has created for you guys, which again, hats off to the BOC, um, you know, as I mentioned before, although I really, really detested the EBP, PICO process, um, you know, Natabak has got it 90% right. Like, and they, they obviously are trying to make this the situation better for you guys, which, 
that opens up more opportunities for education for you guys, which is going to help advance the practice faster. It's amazing how accreditation really does have a large effect on the direction of a profession, um, which I, I, I want to write on personally uh, when I have extra time. Um, I want to write on personally a little more. I did write a, a, an article not too long ago about the NCCA, which is on the fitness side, which is another organization that's just horrible. It's just obstructing education and it's super expensive. And I think more people need to understand that process. Or maybe they shouldn't have to. I don't know. <laughs> I have mixed feelings. Yeah, I like, I like that opinion better. I shouldn't have to understand the process. I just need to get my education, right? All right. Yeah. So as we kind of shift into the the main topic was the maximizing the online learning. What have, what do I need to do to maximize that? Because I mentioned before, I want to take the, the flossing courses or the cupping courses or the IAS Tim uh, Instrument Assisted Soft Tissue Mobilization courses, but those are, those are skills, right? So what can I do to get the most out of my courses, and then what can I do to ensure that those courses that are manual physical skills are transferring rather than from the chair to the patient table. Okay, I, I have some interesting questions that I'm gonna pose you guys, All right? Because right? uh, we went back and forth a lot about whether we were gonna offer manual therapy courses online. Um, and I wanna tell you why we made that decision to include manual therapy courses inside of this Brooke Bush Institute Netflix style model that we have, right? Um, the first thing you have to realize is that there is no research to suggest that hands-on training is better than online training. All right, so we have, to, we have to at least put that out there. Now, we offer live workshops and to get our integrated manual therapist certification, we mandate a live workshop. So you know that from our standpoint, before I go down this rabbit hole that I'm about to go down, that we support live education 100%. We think live education is fantastic. But here's a couple very interesting questions to ask yourself. If before you went to a live workshop, you had a chance to review all of the didactic information, technical information, and videos on each one of the techniques, perhaps practice on a colleague, before you stepped into that class, would that class then become more beneficial? Right? So that would be one of the first questions I would ask is the best place to start in a manual therapy class getting your hands dirty or is it perhaps getting a chance to review with friends and when i say friends i mean colleagues right like i'm not just talking about your random friend grab your roommate do a manipulation um not maybe quite like that but like you grab a colleague you know, somebody you learned from school and you guys go over it and you have that like fun fleshing out time on your own time, repeat the videos as many times as you need before you go in, right? I think there's a huge benefit to that. And I think if we did research and we stacked 30 hours of online education with 30 hours of live education, let's say, against 60 hours of straight educate live education, I don't think 60 hours of live education would do better. I don't. And I think it's for all the reasons we just talked about. I think there's something special about online education, being able to repeat videos, being able to do things on your own time, self-directed study, asynchronous study. 
um, the fact that it's so much easier to fit into your schedule, there's a huge benefit to that. And then you can reinforce with live. The second question I would ask yourself is, do you master manual therapy in a workshop or in practice? And that's another huge question to ask yourself because I'm a COMT. Let me put that out there. So I'm a certified occupational manual, or sorry, certified orthopedic manual therapist through Maitland. I did the seven three-day courses. I did the full-on two-day practical and written exam. Like I did the whole thing, right? But then you look back at those courses and how was my experience? Well, I got rapid fire techniques, forgot most of them, used the big rocks in practice, and those big rocks are what helped me develop mastery. And when I need one of the other 90% of the techniques I learned in the rare situations that they actually become useful, I end up having to look them up anyway. And that's after taking seven three-day courses. Like there's a lot of manual techniques out there, right? What I think we should be focusing on is in workshops, be trying to teach competence, to have enough confidence to feel ready to practice on Monday. Mastery is gonna come from actually being at work, right? So kind of going back to what you were just saying, how do you get the most out of your online education? Well, I think take it at your own time, repeat it as many times as you want and grab a colleague and start practicing. And once you feel comfortable, if you don't have a live workshop available, then you can start doing something on your patients. And I'll give you one of the pieces of advice that I was given from one of my clinical instructors. Let's say we're talking about uh, cervical mobilizations, right? Cervical joint mobilizations. The person to do your first cervical mobilization on is not the highly irritable cervical patient, <laughs> right? So how do you get practice on your cervical mobilizations to get the skill, sensitivity that you need to start working with those patients? Do cervical mobilizations on shoulder patients, right? Like, do cervical mobilizations help shoulder patients? Of course they do, because we know that most shoulder issues are also scapular issues. We know that the scapular and cervical muscles are very interrelated, levator scapuli, upper trapezius, right? We know that cervical and thoracic mobility are very much related to scapular mechanics. So you start working on your cervical and thoracic mobilization technique on shoulder patients where you're less likely to flare them up, but you get a chance to get some manual. And then once you feel comfortable, then you can start shifting your practice over to some of those more irritable patients, right? Same thing we could be said for manipulations or uh, static manual release techniques, soft tissue techniques, or pin and stretch, whatever you wanna do, right? So I think if you don't have a chance at a live workshop, you're gonna go in, you're gonna take these online courses. You're gonna repeat them as often as you need to, and you're gonna find a friend to practice. Right after you found a colleague to practice on, maybe you could even practice on your roommate and offer some free sessions to friends. Great. Then you bring it into practice, you use it on patients that could use therapy in that area, but it's not directly related to their concordance sign. Right? And you move forward that way. 
Now, if we can add a live workshop in there somewhere in the future, post COVID, right? Great, great. I think that's a wonderful thing. And then you take all that into consideration what I just said, and I, I have to throw this out here because this is where I start getting almost personally offended when people are like, oh, you have to learn it live. If you don't learn it live, you're nothing, whatever they want to say. Yeah, because everybody has access to live education. Yeah, you're going to be that ethnocentric? Have you, have you ever been to Montana? You know how many live, educations live education workshops happen in Montana? You know, it's real great to say you have to go to a live workshop if you live in Chicago or New York City, as I do, right? It's not so cool when you're talking about the middle of the country, which sometimes gets left because it is very hard as, as somebody who runs an education company, I can tell you it can be very difficult to fill seats in smaller cities. And that creates a, a financial problem, right? We still have to pay for plane tickets. We still have to pay for instructors to get out there. We still have to pay for marketing and the development and accreditation, right? So let's say we need 12 people minimum to cover our costs. It can be very hard to get 12 people in certain areas. And then these people who are like, oh, it has to be live, 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 it has to be live. I'm like, so you're just saying all those people don't deserve to be able to do manual techniques at all, which means if you believe in manual therapy as being effective, you also think that their patients don't deserve it either. And all of a sudden you go, oh, right, that's an access problem. And that existed before COVID, right? This is way before COVID. This access problem is huge. So when we decided to move forward with manual therapy courses, our thinking wasn't screw everybody. We're just gonna offer it online. Screw it. What's the worst that could possibly happen? I mean, technically speaking, manual therapy techniques are actually really safe. You know, manual rehab is very conservative. I mean, I actually just did a review and everybody thinks cervical manipulations are really dangerous. This is another like one of those myths. It ends up that like Advil is somewhere between 20 and 100 times more likely to have adverse effects than a cervical manipulation. But anyway, nobody's talking about not taking Advil. Um, that aside, you know, you start thinking about these access problems and you go, wow. Yeah, man, we need to get these people education any way they can. And you can't tell me that like online education is worse than no education at all. I think that's just not, that's not fair. That's not fair to them. And maybe one day they'll be able to get to a live workshop, but you know, I think in the meantime they could, and I could even go bigger, right? As we go international at the Brooke Bush Institute, man, there's some, there's some countries out there with physio, physiotherapists as they're called the rest of the world, right? Athletic therapists, not athletic trainers like they are in the United States, but athletic therapists as they're called in other places in the world like Canada, right? And you find that some of these guys just don't have access and they don't have great teachers and they don't have the history of like a United States or an Australia or a United Kingdom that has these long histories of osteopathic medicine and manual therapies through chiropractic and physical therapy. Like, you know, we've had these long histories to build up an infrastructure and they don't have it, right? And what, because I'm not gonna fly to India these people shouldn't have access to manual therapy. Get the heck out of here, man. Like they deserve this stuff too. Their patients deserve this stuff too. Well, you said so you bring up a good, no, you bring up a great point about, you know, pre-COVID about 
those of us who live in the middle of the country, I said Southern New Mexico, West Texas, El Paso is a big, you know, okay, not, it's not Chicago or, you know, Houston, definitely not, no, nowhere near the size of Houston. So Jeremy probably gets a lot of things that come to Houston that, you know, West, you know, Southern New Mexico, West Texas, we don't get a whole lot of people coming out. I think I've actually seen where you guys have scheduled stuff in Santa Fe in the past. Um, we, had to, we had to cancel Santa Fe twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I said, first, we, go ahead. Our first manual therapy workshop was the weekend the whole country went into COVID, quarantine in Santa Fe. But to give you an idea of how we're coming out to Santa Fe, one clinic with 10 therapists guaranteed our costs. Right. And even then, Santa Fe is still a five hour drive for me in Southern New Mexico. So even those of us who are out out in the middle of nowhere of the country, just having this opportunity for this online education, whether it's live webinars or at your own pace, way you, you have it set up. I mean, that's opened up a lot for those of us who are in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, I said, with, with the COVID shutdown, I jumped on some of these online offerings, these, these live webinars that other people were, were offering. So courses that I didn't know when I was gonna be able to take them, because of travel, because again, they're not coming to Southern New Mexico. They're not coming out to El Paso with any frequency, which is, I said, I live like half an hour from, I work in El Paso, but most of them go closer to the airport, which is an hour away from my house. But so it's still, even then it's an hour commute every day to go to a course. I said, we're not getting a lot of these live stuff. So I've either got to go to Phoenix on the rare right. occasion it might make up, up to Albuquerque. So some of us who are more remote in our work settings, are able to take advantage of some of these online courses. With that, how is Brooke Bush said including, so how are you helping those of us kind of retain that, that learning that we are getting online, whether it's through the live webinar or through your on-demand or even other companies that may be offering some of this online content because of COVID or just looking to continue that because they're seeing a benefit from benefit from their enrollments because of how they've had to alter things. Yeah, so it is interesting. We did, so we had a corrective exercise and a program design course, right? That's like strength and performance design, right? Um, those were live workshops and one of my live education manager who lives in Houston um, and another guy named Ken, who's one of our instructors, when the COVID thing happened, we got real aggressive. We're like, look, we need to push this business really, really hard right now because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So guys, I need ideas. So we got really aggressive early and we went Zoom, right, on these workshops. And I was like, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> right? But I was like, what else can we do? Like, it doesn't matter. I was like, if we fail, we fail. At least we tried. It didn't fail. It freaking took off. And they're amazing experiences. My guys have done an incredible job taking this live workshop and bringing it to people's living rooms. And those workshops were so incredibly successful for about eight months that my thinking is individuals like you, Tanya, were taking the workshop. It was really giving access to a whole group of people who didn't have access before because for the most part, we were in big cities. We had 70 workshops booked in 2020, 2020 that we had to cancel. Um, but even you figure like, okay, we have two workshops, two different workshops had 70 total. It still only means we're in like 25, 30 cities in the United States. That's still like, to your point, like we're still not getting out into Santa Fe, well past Santa Fe. Um, 
so what are we doing to then reinforce that is is your next question and you know i think every once in a while on a podcast i get asked why do i do what i do and i think people assume it's because i love education and the truth is i hate education that's why i do what i do right i hate the education system as it is i hate the fact that it's so ridiculously inconvenient I hate the fact that it's all about jumping through hoops. It's all about this, I had it hard, so you're going to have it harder, and whoever survives gets to be an ATC, or whoever survives gets to be a DPT, or whoever survives gets to be a DC. That's terrible. So when we build courses, I'm thinking one thing. What will make this possible for my working colleagues? Whether they're professionals yet or not, when they have a cancellation, when they have uh, a lunch break when they have if you're in a city like I am you're on the subway right like you have a commute or I guess if you're in an uber um, I know some of you guys drive which makes that that's an interesting thing too so we start thinking well how do you make that possible well we know one thing for sure we're gonna have to make it available on both desktop and mobile right so we have a mobile app right that makes it possible to navigate everything we offer right from your phone so that's one step you start realizing you have to make courses short and you have to give people credit as they go. You can't keep doing this cram and forget model of one end summative exam at the end of multiple courses because it creates a lot of stress, it creates a lot of pressure. It only, it only promotes cramming and forgetting anyway. We need to be able to give people credit after they take maybe one hour. You take, Tanya, you, you get a cancellation of an appointment, right? You should be able to just pull up the app and start working through a course. And after an hour of a course, you can either bookmark that hour or you can take your exam and quickly get one credit, right? Short exams. So that was, that was the next step. So we make it mobile, we make courses short, right? And then of course we give credit as we go. And then the third piece I think that we've always worked on is multimedia. So one thing that's gonna be launching much bigger this month and the next two weeks is we're even adding audio voiceover to all of our courses. So now if you're in the car, boom, you can listen to one of my instructors read, essentially read these courses to you. you know, maybe you have to go back and look them over again before you take your, your exam, but um, not everybody learns great by audio, but at least you had the chance to, to hear it over a couple times before you go and take your exam, giving you more access to to somehow get education in those random pieces of downtime right and then we put all of that under a model of if you give me 1999 a month i'm going to let you have access to all of it there's no cost per course you're not going to get penalized for not finishing a course you're not going to get penalized because you paid for a course and it took you 12 months to take it you're not going to get penalized because you failed an exam and now have to take a re-examination fee. Another one of those things that just makes me want to like scratch somebody's eyes out. Sorry to be violent. Um, <laughs> right? Like, so we just did away with all of that. Right. And you can, like it, it's, it drives me nuts that educators get away so often with kicking customer service out a window. Right? It's like, no, we're not going to reduce friction. We're going to increase friction. Well, screw you. Yeah, then you're going to die and you need to die. Like, 
I'm talking businesses. I'm not talking people. Like, you know, education should be $30,000 for a master's degree that you have to give up your entire life for, basically creating another caste system in the United States where only those whose parents will pay for them to stay at home while they go to school can afford, or you do what me and many people do, and basically run yourself into the ground 90 hours a week for a decade doing work and school at the same time. And then wonder why I come out and rant like this on podcasts. Um, right? Like I think to your point, to answer your original question, I know I've been going on some rants. I'm sorry here. To your point, I think the, the way you reinforce education is education companies have to make it possible to take education easily so that you can reinforce on a regular basis. We're, our goal is to get you taking a course a week or a course a month, right? That you can flip open a course and, and not even feel bad if like you have to review courses because you're not paying extra for it. Oh, I started that four hour course from the Brooke Bush Institute and I haven't looked at it in a couple weeks. All right, so I'm gonna throw on the audio file when I'm on my way to work today and get caught back up. Is there a penalty? No. How much did it cost you to spend an extra 30 days? 1999, it's a Netflix membership, right? And then that's on us to be very, very savvy on our business model. But, um, you know, like that's, I think that's the key. Like it, education just should be something totally different than it is. And I, and I think this whole conversation we've actually had for the last hour, like really drives home. I, I hope that that, again, not to sound like a narcissistic prick or egocentric, we need more educators like us, the Brooke Bush Institute and myself, who are like trying to fight the system where it can be fought to make education easier, right? Not necessarily the topics have to be easier. I mean, some things are complicated, but the, the access has to be easier. You were talking about the course model, like where I can learn it at home and then go and, I guess, take the test, you know, so I can, I can learn it online. I can practice it at work and do that kind of thing. And I don't know why I haven't really thought about that before, but it, it really is, um, you know, even listening to your conversation with Mike, you all got kind of nerdy and talking about like you're talking about the null hypothesis or whatever y'all were saying. I don't even know what you were saying. And so for me, sometimes I get lost in those, in those courses and like, okay, well, I don't, honestly, I don't know all the muscles and what connects to this. And this muscle is deeper than this. And you know, this nerve innervates this and like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I quit. So instead I can do that online. Like, okay, well, I learned just this one little piece. Let me try that. All right, cool. All right, now let me go listen to it again. Oh, now I get a little bit more. Now I get a little bit more. And then now I can go back in and say, hey, Brent, this is what I've got from this course. This is this is the way I'm doing it. Is this right? And then you're like, all right, cool. Whenever I finally get to the live workshop, you're like, yes, Jeremy, that's all right. Or no, that's half right or whatever it is. But at least I have an understanding and I can make that correction rather than like just completely out of the blue. So I do like in-person manual hands-on learning, but I think having that as the follow-up will be more beneficial to me in the future. Yeah, I mean, online learning, I think one of the reasons why people love it and realize that us as an industry are actually behind a little bit. You know, you have institutions like the Khan Academy, you have these things called MOOCs that have been going on for more than a decade in other industries like business or like the Khan Academy is math right now is expanded to much, much bigger than math for high school students. Um, you know, you have, you have these models available for us and, and a lot of what they've found to your point, Jeremy, is like, 
Students like it because it's a judgment-free zone. The ability to learn at your own pace takes away that, that horrible peer pressure that we all went through in high school and junior high, right? Or some of us went through, I know I did, in, in our post-grad degrees where you have some asshole teacher who's just being a jerk on stupid details. They're playing the gotcha game. Oh, you didn't remember this piece of the origin of the Serenus Anterior, so you fail. You said rib two to eight, and it's rib one to eight. Fail. And you're like, really? Because that matters to practice? But I didn't remember that one point on the origin? Good job. Thanks, professor. Way to improve the profession, right? We get rid of all of that when we bring it online. You know, and we actually have comment boxes too. So Jeremy, if you were in a course, and you really came up with a question that wasn't answered in the course. Now it's up to us, right? This goes back to that customer service approach to try to answer all of the questions you could have within a course. But if you don't, if we don't, we have that comment box at the bottom that you can go, hey, uh, I was reading this. I had this question and I can't seem to find an answer. And then boom, we can get in there and be like, Actually, Jeremy, that's really interesting. Research hasn't discussed that at all. And you've just come up with an amazing insight or, <laughs> right? Or we can go, hey, that's a really good point. Let me make sure in the next update of this article, we include that question for now, here's the answer, cut and paste, right? Or, you know, write it. So yeah, that's all super possible online. It's, it's uh, online is a really powerful medium. I mean, obviously we're very excited about the online education platform and and is it a replacement for live some of it some of it do we hate live no i mean i spent i i can't so for 10 12 years of my career i did something like 25 to 40 weekend workshops a year like i flew all over the country that's what i did right i'd love i love being in front of people but um I also love what online is able to do. I, ju I just get such heartfelt messages from people sometimes about like they didn't have access before. It's like, holy cow, we're like actually making a, a big difference here. All right. So we have talked about how I can take the the course online, the manual skills course online, practice it at home on my kids, on my wife, practice it at school, on my students, and then go to a live event possibly um, what are some of the things that I can do to help ensure that I'm, I'm really getting those skills? Uh, like, is there, is there any sort of jump on Skype and I'm going to watch you do this kind of service or, or something like that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, how can I really make sure I'm getting it right without having, without going to the live course if I can't, like if I'm Tanya and I'm five hours away from a big city. I do want to take one aside and say, you just made me think that punishment for a kid could be gastroc trigger point release by pressure. And that would be hilarious. Um, but and potentially helpful. But aside from that, um, so realize anytime you add a proctor, right, you add live oversight, you're increasing costs a lot. Right? So 1999 a month would become impossible. Right? Like if you wanted me to watch over you for an hour, you have to pay for that time. Right? And there's got to be a profit margin in there and there's got to be room for expenses and marketing. Like it's not just as simple as like paying some guy for the hour that he's there. Uh, unfortunately, businesses just don't work that way. So I would say we could potentially offer that as an extra service. 
Although I think the better thing for individuals to do at this current juncture is find a mentor if you can, right? I think that is always helpful. You know, if you can find a more experienced therapist or maybe you guys could create like local th manual therapy groups, that would be cool. You guys could therapize each other. This I just created a word, therapize. Um, you could therapize each other which would actually be really helpful for the profession too. Cause I don't know about you guys, you know, I don't practice full time anymore, but when I was practicing full time, like my body would like get a little beat up, you know, like your forearms start getting a little hurt, no matter how good your, your mechanics are, your shoulders, your low back, like some of this stuff starts to bother you a little bit. If you have to get up and down and up and down, like you might start feeling your knees, but maybe you could create a little group that would work on each other. And in that process of working on each other, help refine each, help have each other refine your technique, right? Because there's nothing better than doing a technique on a therapist to get feedback on your technique or to have a technique done on you by a therapist who knows how to do it. You're like, oh, that's what that's supposed to feel like. Yeah, I think, I think that was kind of like what I'm missing is like, you know, I want somebody who knows how to do it to do it on me and then to me do it on them. And like you said, I can find a mentor or, you know, I can be that mentor for Sophia or whoever it is. You know, I work here in a district with 10 athletic trainers. So it could be just, hey, all right, on the first Monday of the month, we're going to get together and we're all going to practice uh, flossing on each other or whatever it is. Or, you could, or like I said, I think the, the more attractive thing would do would be like, you know, it's like therapy recovery day. So you guys all treat each other. And then the way to integrate what you're talking about is like, okay, and your intervention has to include flossing, right? So you're going to treat me today and it has to include flossing somewhere, right? And that's how you get better at flossing, for example. But I think, you know, combining those two things, so it just doesn't become a practice session, but like becomes something that every therapist can look forward to, right? Like Jeremy's going to work on my neck today and boy, does it need it. Um, you know, I think that becomes more of a, an attractive thing for people. You know, I think the one piece that we're also missing, which kind of comes back to what Tanya was talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, is you also just have to watch outcomes, you know? So you, you have to create your assessment protocols. There is enough research out there for you guys to create reliable and accurate, accurate being specific and sensitive assessment protocols so that you have your objective measures set up. I would work hard to create templates to make it easy on you. So when you know what, for example, goniometric assessments are reliable, they're in a nice little spreadsheet for you. So you don't have to keep looking them back up, but you have to kind of give yourself a little credit. If you feel uncomfortable with the technique, but it is changing your outcomes in a positive way, you're probably headed in the right direction. Doesn't mean it's ideal yet, but that's where practice hopefully will improve your outcomes. You'll be able to compare things in practice and see the change in your outcomes so that you keep getting better that way. Outcome driven practice. Scary thought. I know we mentioned wanting to talk about like the calf strain and how to choose which intervention when, but I think we'll save that for a different time because I think that's probably another, you know, 45 minute type talk. And so I think we'll save that topic for another time. We'll revisit this here shortly. Uh, and again, yeah. it, it comes from a situation with an athlete that I have and it's just about how do I, how can I do better or how can I know which one? So Tanya, what other questions do you have for Brent about online learning? I guess kind of what we talked about kind of underlying theme through the last hour is, you know, 
people guys people really have to realize what kind of learner they they are you know so your online learning platform is great for people who especially talked about short you know short intervals um, being able to go back and review having those audio listener those audio um, learners versus kinesthetic versus visual you know tapping into all those different learning styles but as people for people you know you as an educator knowing those and meeting those audiences but as a learner we also have to recognize what kind of learners we are so that we, we can find those educators that are providing those opportunities i think not to get to disagree with you tanya but <laughs> sorry about this um but i do i do want to point out a, a, a thing audible changed my life mm -hmm. Right. So I listen to a lot of audible books. And the reason why it changed my life is because I had some serious imposter syndrome about being a startup CEO. And I was able to I, I go through 70 to 100 business books a year on audible. And the question I always get asked is, do you retain all of it? And I go, no, <laughs> right? like absolutely not. But it doesn't matter. Because if I'm reading 70 books a year that I couldn't otherwise read, right? When I'm sitting in front of a computer actually working, I'm reading research reviews for what we do, right? Developing courses. So I had to find extra time to read these business books. Now, for most people, it's actually they, their work day is practice, and then they're trying to find extra time just to learn the education, right? Realize that if Audible isn't the ideal learning state for me, but I'm picking up 15% of 70 books a year that's still the equivalent of reading an extra book a month that i otherwise wouldn't have touched so i agree with you tanya if you are a very key aesthetic learner you're probably going to want to search out a manual therapy course live at some point but don't not do online education just because it isn't your optimal pathway doesn't mean it could be cut doesn't become your primary pathway because it's a, a, an order of magnitude more convenient. You can do education every day on your way to uh, work in your car by listening to these voiceovers on our courses, which gives you an opportunity to get an extra 100 hours in per year, right? Whereas maybe the next live workshop, well, with COVID, right, it might not be until 2022. Right, but meanwhile, you just took in 100 hours of education. So you only got 20% of it. Who cares? That's 20 hours you wouldn't have gotten. Mm -hmm. Right, like I think we have to be real careful with the all or none stuff and just kind of realize like a step in the right direction is still a step. Sorry, didn't mean to disagree with you, Tanya. I agree with you. 100%. No, I, I think we're, no, I think we're just saying it slightly different. I said, I yeah. mean, I said, as, as a kinesthetic learner, like for me to sit and read an article is not my ideal like i like i would need something like audible on my commute reading the article to me because for me to sit like i, I said i'm a kinesthetic audio audio learner like for so for me to read sit there and read research like fiction books i'm fine but me to sit and read research i can read the same article like five times and not take anything up but i listen to it or i do a hands-on type course even if it's a webinar or just a somebody watching a video i get way more out of that than trying to read Research articles sure. sometimes. So again, again, as learners, understanding which ways we can consume that also is important for us. So we know which which company to go for. It's like you said, read the bibliography for you know are they using primary secondary sources? 
and, it, and also knowing how how we need to consume that education to improve our practice. Yeah, and you'll get better with practice no matter what education you consume. That's you know that's another point that not isn't made enough. Yes, Jeremy, you made the the comment about reading research. Nobody's good at reading research when they pick up a research study. I wasn't good at reading research when I picked up a research study, and now I crush them. But why do I crush them? Because I freaking read research all the time. But I didn't start there. Like nobody just goes, ah. I am divinely inspired genius and I'm just going to learn research through osmosis. Like it doesn't work that way. First couple of research studies I read, I was like, oh man, statistics. Uh. And you come to find out like it's it's really not as difficult as you as you first first thought. It's really just a generally speaking, research tells us a probable yes or a probable no to a single question. Right. And once you learn how to frame it that way, you, you get through research pretty quick. All right. I think that'll wrap us up for the maximizing online education. Again, I think there is probably two really good quotes is Dr. Brent Brookbush hates the current system of education, basically limiting our access. And we need to change that. And then. If we're trying to learn a skill online, a manual skill online, we should form groups to therapize, therapize, therapize each other. So I, even though I spelled it out, I just couldn't even say it right. It's a made up <laughs> word. We should therapize each other. So yes. Dr. Brooke Bush, someone wants to reach out and get a hold of you. What's going to be the very best way? Yeah, guys, the brookebushinstitute.com is obviously the platform. There's a support page up there. Um, we're on everywhere on social media. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, uh, Facebook is one of our bigger bigger platforms. Uh, we do a live Q and A. I do the live Q and A on Tuesday. My live education director does it on Friday. Like we're all over the place. So uh, you could probably just Google Brooke Bush, B-R-O-O-K-B-U-S-H, one word. That is my last name. I did get stuck with that one. Brent Brooke Bush, tongue twister. Um, but, you know, you guys can get out there and, and start checking things out. And, you know, like I said, the, the website is $19.99 a month. We offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. So we really are trying to improve access. You can get on there. You don't like it, you can cancel and we'll give you your money back. Like it's, this isn't just a money thing for me. Like I, I, I'm really trying to fix stuff. And if you guys aren't ready to buy, just get on social media and, and let's start, you know, taking stuff in that way you know hopefully between the three of us here on this podcast we'll be part of some big change here in the future and you know i think covid all it really did was it sped us up like a decade everything that's happening during covid was happening anyway covid just made it happen faster yep before when i was doing the podcast if i had a zoom call or use a google hangout or whatever with anybody i had to schedule a call a week before so they could figure out that their computer didn't work and then another one like three days later so they could actually get their camera working so now everybody for the most part knows how to you know get on zoom or whatever so yeah it, it really did just that it just amplified what was already happening so tanya best way to get a hold of you uh on twitter and instagram i'm t-e-w-a-t-c my email uh Easiest through probably my Gmail, tewatson79 at gmail.com. I am on Instagram, Sports Medicine Broadcast. Again, Sports Medicine Broadcast on Instagram. What was that, Dr. Brookbush? Thank you. 
You guys are awesome. That's all I was going to say. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No worries. No worries. So uh, one of my partners is Mark Pro. So if you're using Mark Pro for recovery, then you can use the SMB. Again, if you're getting that product, then use that code. Usually have to buy it for yourself because through the school PO system, the coupon thing doesn't work, but check it out. And then Frio Hydration, we love them. We got a junior high track meet today, so we're going to use all the hands-free water stations, and I freaking love those things. We just got ours in. I'm excited for our track, track meet on Friday to use those. All right, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Brent Brooke Bush. That's, again, all one word, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash Brent Brooke Bush. For Jeremy, Dr. Brent Brooke Bush, Tanya Watson, and the Sports Medicine Broadcast, that is a wrap. Thanks.